Hey, it's Brad Block, otolaryngologist and host of the Physician's Guide to Doctoring podcast, and welcome back to the November Friday Takeover, week three. I'll be interviewing guests that cover a wide range of topics, all that have the goal of helping physicians become the best versions of ourselves in and out of the exam room. In the next few weeks, I'll be interviewing guests to discuss the Venn diagram, that is medicine, marriage, and money, being a physician practicing abroad, and ethically utilizing the power of placebo. I'm so grateful for Ryan and Casey for the opportunity and for their faith in me. So let's start the show. After experiencing paralyzing burnout as a newly minted primary care physician, Dr. Diane Shannon made the hard decision to leave practice and pursue a writing career. Her focus for 20 years has been drawing attention to the ways to address clinician burnout, system inefficiency, and patient safety problems. She's the co-author of Preventing Physician Burnout, Curing the Chaos, and Returning Joy to the Practice of Medicine, which was published in 2016. Her personal experience with burnout and her desire to support clinicians motivated her to become a certified coach three years ago. She now helps clinicians gain clarity on their goals, increase their bandwidth, overcome barriers, and improve their professional and personal lives. Dr. Shannon attended Williams College, Jefferson Medical College, and Harvard University. She completed training in internal medicine at St. Elizabeth's Medical Center in Boston and practiced general internal medicine before making the shift to writing and coaching. Now, this interview was suggested by Dr. Tam Tiet, a family physician at Sutter Health. So thank you for the suggestion, Dr. Tiet. Now, I've spoken in the past to other physicians about burnout from the physician perspective. But what can health systems do in order to address burnout? That was Dr. Tiet's idea. What should we be telling our leadership? So that was the topic for today's discussion. We discussed the importance of physician retention and how we can accomplish that, addressing gender and racial disparities in compensation, retention, and promotion. And what does all of this have to do with pebbles in our shoes? Check it out for more. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. It's story time, brought to you by locumstory.com. Today we'll be reading Docs in Shocks. Some docs are overworked as work works overworked workers weary. Some docs are overstocked, stopped as pandemic TikToks keep docs off clocks. If docs are in shock as the pandemic clock TikToks, then locums is the token to unburn the burnt out broken. So how many clock TikToks must talk until docs tick box? and swaps to the spoken locum tenens token to unburn the burnt out broken. Enough ticks have talked. Time is now, and locums is how. Locum tenens tends to trend as a godsend mend to burnt out ends. For more locum tenens information, go to drpodcastnetwork.com slash locumstory is your final destination. Dr. Diane Shannon, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Brad. I'm glad to be here. So tell us your origin story. How did you go from practicing physician to physician coach? Well, honestly, it's because I burned out. Yeah, that's the simple answer. And this was many years ago. And back then, there was no talk about burnout. Like that word was not in the lexicon. 
And so I really didn't know what was going on. I just knew I came to a point where I could not continue. It wasn't until many years later that I actually realized what had been going on. And so when I left clinical practice, I took a position as medical director at a communications company. And I was really lucky in that while I was there, I had a lot of on the job training in terms of writing and editing. And so when I decided to become a freelance writer, I was really prepared. And so I jumped in and I've been now a freelance healthcare writer for more than 20 years. And my focus was really working with nonprofits who are trying to improve the healthcare system. So it gave me a lot of understanding about what some of the drivers are about physician burnout. It was actually in one of the pieces I was writing that I ran across the definition of professional burnout, thought, oh my gosh, there's actually a name for what happened to me. And so that really started a different trajectory for my career. And I wrote a book with another physician. We spent a year and a half interviewing experts and physicians who'd experienced burnout. And it really became so clear that burnout is a systems issue. And so that was really my thinking and what I was focused on in terms of how do we address this? We have to fix the big, hairy system problems. And what I came to see was that there's also a role for the individual. And like those big system problems have to be addressed because they are what are driving burnout. And at the same time, there are places where physicians can find agency. And when they make changes there, it actually affects, it improves like what their daily life experience is. And so that's why I, I do both now. I continue to write to advocate for system change and I coach individual uh, physicians around the places where they have agency. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking, and our audience is really going to be those physicians who either are in leadership roles and can affect change or have access to those physicians. So we're going to learn how to speak their language, speak to the administration in a language that they need to hear in order to give them the motivation to affect those changes. So let's start with some easy shots. What are the commonly used ineffective strategies for addressing physician burnout? We'll start with a little humor, right? Like okay. pizza Friday, taco Tuesday, right? <laughs> yoga class, oh, resilience training. How about yoga class at lunch when no one has a lunch hour? So I would say the biggest mistake is to focus on those individual resilience improvement initiatives without in parallel addressing the system problems and communicating about how you're addressing this, the system problems. And so I would say that's the biggest mistake. And boy, can you erupt some real anger when you do that, if you just focus, of course, because physicians know that there's these system inefficiencies and places where there are ridiculous workarounds. And then you tell them, oh, you know, here's a mindfulness class for you. Of course, they're going to be angry, right? So I'd say that is the biggest mistake is going that route. I think the other one is, you know, it's great that there are more and more chief wellness officers, but I think one of the mistakes that organizations have made is to not give that person the resources they need and the decision-making power to make the changes that are really needed. So making them a true chief, you know, C-suite level executive. That's another mistake that I've seen that I think, you know, changing that, really putting your money behind 
let's have a chief wellness officer who can make the changes in all sorts of ways, right? That would make a difference. So let's talk about those changes, right? You're the chief wellness officer now. Congratulations on your new job. What type of influence, what type of power is this individual going to need in order to be able to affect change? Are they going to need really need to be tapped into HR, into operations, into the EMR? What are we talking about? Yes, all of that and have a budget, right? And have protected time. So that's some of the basics, right? Just to get started. Protected time. Wait a second. The CEO isn't a practicing physician who's still practicing and therefore needs protected time. Why would the chief wellness officer? This should be a full-time job if they're in the C-suite. Yes. Well, what I'm saying is that often they don't have that protected time to do the chief wellness officer you know, responsibilities. They're juggling two balls, right? And in terms of what they could do. If I were chief wellness officer, what I would do first is to gather some of the data on the ROI of investing, right? Investing in some of the system and practice level changes that are actually going to make a difference. So taking some of those pebbles out of the physician's shoes. And with that, you know, really making the case and connecting the dots between the cost For example, turnover of a physician, right? It's half million to a million dollars for each physician who leaves and you need to replace them, recruit, replace, up onboard, all of that. So that's a big cost. I think one of the problems is it doesn't get connected back to what it would take to prevent that loss, right? Because you've got HR over here spending the money to find those physicians. And then over here, you've got the chief wellness officer or whoever else trying to invest in preventing that. And often that prevention is hard to see. So really trying to pull the numbers together and not just on turnover, but also absenteeism, presenteeism, level of engagement, right? All of those places that burnout and physicians leaving makes a big difference, has an impact on the metrics that the organization cares about. So tying those together as best they can. I think, you know, there's one initiative that I just, I've really come to appreciate. And this was developed or started by Mission Health in North Carolina. And their CEO is a physician, Ron Paulus at the time. And what they began doing was inviting the non-clinical C-suite and the board to shadow a physician or nurse for an entire shift right? So showing up, putting on scrubs, being in the OR, the ER, sitting next to them as they're, you know, doing their thousand clicks to deal with the electronic health record, all of that. And so those who might be in the boardroom making decisions actually knew what the daily life was like for those doctors and nurses. And what happened was when they presented, when the CEO presented a wellness proposal to the board, that had to do with a lot of how are we going to decrease the inefficiency in the electronic health record, it was immediately approved because they had seen what it was like. So I think some of that also sharing stories is is really powerful because yes, there's a data, there's also the emotional, like the story behind the data. And I think both are really important. And as a writer, that is what I've seen is like telling those stories backed up by data that's reliable, that is what can begin to make changes. So one of my questions, which you already answered, was going to be, how do you balance physician job satisfaction with 
the narrow profit margin of a hospital system? And you mostly answered that. But the next question would be, so you've established how much it costs to lose a physician. How do you prove that your interventions then lead to prevention of physician turnover? Right. Well, I think you have to track it over time. And one of the one of the challenges is that so often the C-suite is looking for the next quarter, the next year. Some of these changes or interventions, you're going to see the prevention over time. It might be two years before you see those numbers come down. But I think it's tracking all of that, right? What are your burnout numbers doing? What are your turnover numbers doing? Or have you had, for instance, as some organizations do, a whole group leave your organization and go to your competitor, right? I mean, what's the cost associated with that? So something else that I've read that you've written about is addressing work-life integration. And actually, that's not something we've talked about in 150 episodes. I've never talked about work. Like there's been a mention of work-life balance, right? But you changed that term a bit. First, why the difference in terminology? Why the change from work-life balance to work-life integration? Right. And I will say that came from a published study that I was talking about in one of my um, blog posts. I tend to use the word work-life balance. And I know that there are a lot of people who don't like it because there's this idea that there's no such thing as balance, right? It's more of a flow, right? So work-life integration is really about how much conflict is there between the needs that you have at work and the needs that you have at home. So it, it's that conflict. And there are indexes that can get a sense of where an individual's level of work-life integration is, like what the conflict level is. And so in some ways, they're talking about the same thing. I actually prefer your way with work-life balance because work-life integration to me sounds like you're breastfeeding while typing in the EMR. So you've managed to integrate the two together. You're not trying to do that. Actually, when one bleeds into the other, that's going to increase your risk of having burnout, right? You need to right. be able to shut off. You need to be able to get away. Exactly. So I think the balance really, for me, I visualize a seesaw where sometimes it tilts more towards work and sometimes it tilts more towards home, but it's always this balancing act. And that's why I continue to use that word because I think there's one way of seeing it. It's like it all has to be precisely in balance. And that's why we don't like this word. I see it as whole person balance, right? You're a whole person and both are important to you, your personal life and your work life. And physicians, the physicians that I work with, you know, they, one of the most important things to them is to be able to continue to provide quality care and have those relationships that are meaningful with their patients. And what I've seen, you know, over the past couple of years is as that time gets, you know, there's more and more productivity pressure, right? And as that time gets eroded, their sense of meaning in their work is really suffering. And that is also driving some of the burnout. So what are some strategies that you would recommend for improving that work-life balance, right? What should either the physician themselves or if you're a healthcare leader and you really genuinely care about your physicians, what is it you should be looking for? Well, I would say, so starting with the system level, first of all, is really understanding what are the pebbles in the shoe for each clinical area, right? Because they're going to be different across an organization, but really not just thinking you know what it is and making a change, like mandating a change, 
but actually engaging the front line and finding out what is it that like what are the biggest obstacles to their getting their work done efficiently to their having you know satisfaction in their work and then really working with them to see what can be done about it like picking them off one by one and you know there's this program that was started at a health system in Hawaii called getting rid of stupid stuff and there's a great New England Journal of Medicine article about it and basically they started that way they created a, a process where doctors and nurses could elect something they started with the EHR elect something that was really bothersome that really was stupid right it didn't work it didn't make any sense and slowly they began working at changing those things and they talked about how just a changing a few things had a huge morale effect right because you begin to feel like oh i'm not just a cog in the wheel there is something i can change and look how much easier my day is when i don't have to deal with this crazy thing you know one of the examples they gave in, in that article was about nurses who were taking care of the newborns and their electronic health record required that every time there was incontinence, they had to go into the record and record it. But these are babies, right? So they were still having to do this for every diaper change. And the thing is, once it was brought to the attention of the right people, it got changed. But the nurses had been dealing with this for years. So those are the kinds of small pebbles that actually can be easily changed. Then there are the bigger ones, right? There's a culture, there's leadership style, there's all kinds of everything that goes along with compensation and the productivity pressures involved. But those are some of the places to start. And I think the first thing is to really understand what they are and to respect the physicians and the nurses at the front lines, to, to respect that they know what the problems are and they are the ones who are gonna come up with the best solutions. So there's a piece of it that's about respect. Right. So it sounds like it's two-pronged. One, you're acknowledging and making them feel heard and cared about. Then you're acting upon that. So you're not just, it's not just lip service, but that lip service actually has its benefits in and of itself. Right. And I think the other part that goes along with that is communicating. So communicating, we are working on this, or we can't do this right now and here's why. And getting that back to the people who are in that situation. Because so often they don't know that leadership is even paying attention to this, right? So that communication is really important. And then to answer your question about the individual, you know, when I work with individuals, I really try to help them first identify their values, right? So when you think about your whole life, where are the places that really support you in being your best self? And what are the changes you might make, starting with a very small change that might fill up your well so you're more likely to be able to be your best self, starting that way. And then, you know, we kind of brainstorm various things they can do. We work through setting goals that connect with those values. And then they do experiments where they try it. I always suggest trying something very small with the approach of a an of like a, a researcher right so approach it as if it's an experiment not like a pass or fail this is your report card but try this one thing maybe it is i'm going to try to walk for 30 minutes this week so just try it does it work if it didn't what were the obstacles let's come back and kind of rethink it but approaching it in an iterative way exactly let's do yeah. this as an experiment 
And so those things, and the other piece I will say is addressing some of the mindset places where people get stuck. So messages that we have picked up either from our childhood or from our training about it's not okay to say no. The patient always comes first. If I don't do it, no one's going to do it right. So I have to do it. So those kinds of places where we don't even realize we're holding onto these beliefs and they get in our way. So helping them to have those insights and to be able to then work through that and what's a different way of approaching that the next time. From a systems perspective, you had mentioned the pebbles in the shoes, right? So what are some of the more common pebbles that you've seen or heard about? Well, I have to say the electronic health record is one, two, and three. Yeah. That's huge. Another is not having enough time with patients. So feeling like in order to get their notes done, they have to choose between either spending less time than they'd like in conversation with a patient or doing two hours at night and time on the weekend to get their notes done. Well, if your notes are an issue, refer to two of my previous episodes because I had two different charting coaches on to help people make sure they finish their notes on time. And I've been taking their recommendations and I've been getting home much earlier. So there are other solutions, which is, and one of the, one of the, you talked about the mindset, right? My mindset was there's a patient in the waiting room. I can't finish this note now because they're, they're waiting for me and I don't want them to wait any longer. And once I flip that around to, I need to get this done so that I'm freeing up all my mind space for this neck patient so they get my undivided attention. I'm sure they're willing to wait another two or three minutes to make sure they have that. Now I'm finishing each and closing out each note. And then at the end of the day, yeah, I might be running a little more behind, but that's for a different episode. I apologize for interjecting that into ours, but there are solutions out there for some of these, some of these problems. Yes. So aside from that, I think pebbles in the shoe, lack of flexibility with scheduling where there might be, obviously for some specialties, right? If you've got the OR booked, you don't have a lot of flexibility there. But there are places where there could be more flexibility. There are places where, you know, there could be job sharing and just opening up that as a possibility. And honestly, I think if we started asking the question, what do we need to do to retain physicians? It would change the thinking. Like, what if that were the priority instead of the other 10 things that seem to be right now? Yeah. So something that you had said earlier about that CEO sat down with a physician for a day, saw all the times they had to click in order to get something done. Then they went back to the the board and had to change the EMR. The way I saw that next step would be great. So then it takes that physician less time. So now we can free up their schedule a little bit and put on a few more patients. That might be their understanding, right? Let's squeeze as much as we can out of this physician. And it's almost like we're expendable. We're easily yeah. replaceable. And they have to be reminded that we're not. Or maybe and, we and are, just, right? With advanced practice providers, right? Getting right. more and more practice independence. But just to go back and for one thing that you said is that they actually had the board come and do those shadowing. So it was people who had no clinical experience at all suddenly. And there they were, the board of the hospital. They had never seen so much you know, they didn't really know on a granular level what was going on. So I think that understanding is huge. It's one of the things that makes my practice great. We are a physician owned and run practice and we have a C-suite that are their executives. They're not physicians, 
but the bo- it's ultimately the final decisions on larger issues are the board who are elected actually full-time practicing physicians. So there should be a lot more of that in medicine. I agree. So there are other things that you mentioned in your in that specific blog post, right, that we haven't quite touched on. They're a little more specific. Addressing gender and racial disparities in compensation, retention, and promotion. So how would you go about executing on something like that? Right. Well, I think the first is to have the data. So really looking at that. And again, then it's making it a priority, right? There's went back and looked at the discrepancies in salary and then began over like a series of years to equalize that. So the first year they did, I think it was something like $1.8 million was added for salary in order to equalize by gender. And so I think, but it has to be something that's actually a priority of the organization. And again, what if you were to ask the question, what do we need to do to retain women physicians? And in that instance, it's not just about money. There are a number of other pebbles in the shoe that the women physicians are dealing with uniquely. For example, coming back after childbirth and having to make up call for the time that you were gone. So do double call while you've got a newborn. What? Yeah, wanting to continue breastfeeding, but the logistics of getting that done, like, great, we have a lactation room. It's in the basement. It takes you 20 minutes to get there, right? And then you're behind in your patients. Yeah, it's not built into the day. There needs to be time blocked off specifically for a lactation. Yeah. And there are organizations that are beginning to do that. And not only that, provide RVU compensation for that break so that they're not losing money if they continue to breastfeed, which we all know is the best thing for the kids, if you can do that. Yeah, I would love to see that on some executives' PowerPoint. And this is what we're going to be compensating them each time they pump, right? Now you've assigned a dollar value to each time right. someone pumps to pumps breast milk. But again, if you think about it as what do we need to do to retain those physicians? They are our most valuable commodity. Well, I shouldn't use the word commodity. Most valuable human resource, right, is our people. So what do we need to do in order to make it a place where they can actually work efficiently and have a life? And want to stay. I mean, imagine, right, yes. That's that was your experience, right? Imagine this is how easy they made it for me to breastfeed. I am never leaving this place, right? Like yes. that type right. of loyalty that you'd espouse exactly. by that investment in in people. We are the income drivers of the system. And that is often forgotten if we're the ones that are deciding how the money's being spent. So what about, you, you mentioned coaching and networking opportunities, right? Gender and maybe even racial specific coaching and network opportunities. We've had other speakers speak about the importance of your mentor's looking like you. And so, and that I think is going to engender more, it snowballs from there, right? If you have one black surgeon, there's a resident in the training, per, or rather a medical student sees that black surgeon, black medical student, they're more likely to want to go into that specialty because they see that as a possibility. Whereas if nobody looked like them, they wouldn't. So then that person becomes a member of the department, it becomes a resident, then becomes attending, and then more opportunities and more opportunities. So how do you get that started? And how do you facilitate more of it? I'm definitely not the expert on this. So okay. I, I'll, <laughs> I'll just say that, you know, to start, 
it's tricky because you also don't want to put that person, whatever their background is, you know, they've had the maybe not been promoted as they should. You don't want to make them have to stand up and speak for their whole, their entire gender or their entire race, right? You don't want to put that on them. But I think more opportunities to look at, okay, who are we inviting to speak at our organization? Who speaks at Grand Rounds? And to say, oh, there aren't any women available on to speak on this topic. Well, I don't think that's true, right? If you haven't, if you're looking nationally, of course, there's a woman who could speak on that, or there's an African American person who could speak on that. So I think those are some of the places where we can begin to say, wait, are we really being inclusive? So other opportunities, there are other opportunities there than just hiring, right? Yes. There are other ways to look at it. It's hiring is one way, but there are many other ways out there to be more inclusive. Right. I interviewed a number of women physicians about their challenges last year. And one of them shared this term that I hadn't heard before, which was mantles. And those are all male panels. And they said, like, didn't anybody notice that all 12 people who were speaking that day were male? Right. I think it's just becoming more aware is one of the steps. But again, I'm not an expert on this, and I will defer to those who are. Yes, we're two white people here sitting talking about how to recruit more black people. Yes, <laughs> I'm seeing the optics of this. But certainly there is still a role for us to be talking about it, right? And I think that's this is what makes a good ally is we do need to not just rely on our colleagues um, of color to do all of the lifting on this, right? We need to be involved in and talking about it and not because this then frees them up to pursue the things that they want to do in addition to right all of this other work that that gets put on them. So to wrap this up, you now are in this position of chief wellness officer, right? What is your first priority? My top priority or my first priority? Both. One and then the other. Okay. Well, my top priority is really to have all clinicians thrive, not just be pulled out of burnout to be some neutral place, but actually thrive at their work. So that would be my goal. Now getting there, it's like multi-pronged, right? And one of the things that I would do is I would look at my leadership style as a member of the C-suite and look at, am I leading with a top-down mandate, like old school Sloan style, or am I leading as a servant leader? So that would be one and encouraging as best I can others to take on that role of servant leader. In terms of what I would do first, I would shadow, I would go interview, I would do focus groups if it's possible. It's hard with busy physicians and other clinicians, but really get a better understanding and, and begin to have those relationships so that I get to hear what's going on, the bad stuff that often doesn't make its way up to the decision makers. So listen, just yeah. sit and listen. Ask those questions and you know, there's organizations that have set up systems where there can be this kind of community, right, of nurses or doctors that can talk about what those pebbles in the shoe are and get that then sent like up the chain to the decision makers who could make a difference. So the question is, are they listening, right? Just like the title of my piece, are they listening to what's happening? Because again, it comes back to stories as well. It's like, if you're really listening, 
and you look at what the daily experience is like, you you have to move to change it. I mean, what physicians are dealing with right now is not sustainable. It's just not. And so you go and you understand that. And I think you have to be pretty cold hearted not to jump in and want to make the changes that you can make. Beautiful. Well, where can people find you? Yes. Best place is either LinkedIn, Diane W. Shannon, or my website, dianeshannon.com. Excellent. Well, I appreciate all the work that you're doing and the great work with the blog and the book. And it was a pleasure speaking to you. Thanks so much, Brad. For doctors, the story has changed. Visit drpodcastnetwork.com slash locum story for unbiased information about locum tenens and see if it should be your next chapter. And remember, locum tenens tends to trend as a godsend mend to burnt out ends. Everything in this podcast is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, and we are not providing medical advice. No physician-patient relationship is formed, and anything discussed in this podcast does not represent the views of our employers. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.